This is an Alexandrian Media original podcast. Today on the Composer Chronicles, I am pleased to introduce you to composer Barnaby Martin. Based in England, Barnaby is an award-winning composer of contemporary classical music who has seen success with his music all around the world. His works have been performed by world-renowned ensembles such as the Tokyo Philharmonic Orchestra, the Orchestra of Opera North, the Berkeley Ensemble, the Ligeti Quartet, the Quartet of St. Paul's Cathedral, Westminster Cathedral Choir, and Illuminaire Choir. In 2018, his orchestral work Quanta was the winner of the Toru Takamitsu Composition Award, making him the first composer from the United Kingdom to have received the award. His career as a composer has led him to become a video essayist, where he posts video essays on a wide variety of topics on his YouTube channel named Listening In. Stick around until the end of the episode to listen to Barnaby's piece for solo oboe and SATB quartet, Christ of St. John of the Cross. This is The Composer Chronicles, a podcast that delves into the stories of composers both past and present. I'm Stephen Chigar, and this is episode number 39, Barnaby Martin. Why don't we start with you just telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the composition field? So uh, I'm a composer. I'm also a singer as well. So I actually started doing a lot of singing at school um, as a treble and then ended up as a tenor. And that's how I sort of got into into singing. I actually went to the same school that Benjamin Britten went to uh, in, in Gresham's. It's called the Gresham School in Norfolk in England. Uh, wow. And it's uh, he actually hated the school, which is <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I actually like the school, so I you know I don't know if that makes any yeah. difference. But uh, yeah, so he only he only lasted a short period there, and he actually wrote one of his most famous pieces, choral pieces called "Hymn to the Virgin." I don't know if you've heard it. I have, yes. Um, in when he was in ill in the sanatorium at Gresham's, um, and we used to perform this all the time. And at the bottom of the score, it says, I think it says something like um, composed in Holt, Norfolk, or something like that. And I always loved that. Um, so I, I was exposed to a lot of Britain when I was young. We did we did, did some, some really advanced music. Actually, we did Hint to the Virgin, Rejoice in the Lamb, Hint to St. Cecilia, all these uh, amazing choral pieces mm. of Britain, which were actually incredibly hard for a school choir to do, but I yeah. loved doing them. And so I sort of started uh, started thinking about writing. And actually, that sort of at the same time, when I was 10 or 11, I started to teach myself to play the piano. I'd learned a little bit when I was young, but then I started up again. Um, and then from that, I started to improvise a little bit uh, on the piano when I was sort of 11, 12. Um, I never knew how to write anything down. I was just sort of fiddling around with things. Um, and from there, I then found Sibelius. There's in the, mm. not, not the composer, but the program. Yeah. Um, we had Sibelius, I think it was Sibelius four or five on the computers at school. Um, and I just spent hours and hours fiddling with Sibelius and creating these, you know, random compositions. You know, the ones where you have, uh, you know, uh, this is great, exclamation mark is the name of the track. And this is better. And, you know, all these sorts of uh, <laughs> oh, uh, amazing rubbish, you know, this is right. OK sort of thing. Multiple versions of just random things that I had. And I was fiddling around with instruments and I fiddle around with 
you know, uh, playing things in. We had we came I came across a MIDI keyboard and I would sort of play things in. I had I had these ideas in my head and I had absolutely no idea how to write them down in any sort of coherent way. But I would just mm-hmm. fiddle and try and create symphonies and and you know big concertos for piano. They were ridiculous, a ridiculous piece of music. Um, and I've still got some of them and I still sometimes look back at them and think these are crazy. Um, there was there was one where I did a I, I literally wrote a sort of harpsichord concerto but it had sort of 15 harpsichords uh, all playing <laughs> at once it was just it was just ridiculous I, and I spent, I spent all my time doing this in the holidays and the weekends I would just play around Sibelius and and actually it was quite useful because I, I was at, went to a boarding school and my uh, my dad was a housemaster so in the UK system so if you know that we have these sort of boarding houses um, mm-hmm. and so I lived in school um, and that meant I had access to the music department and I could go on the computers um, and, and fiddle around with Sibelius for ages. Um, but it wasn't really until I got to, I think it was about 16 or 17, that I actually wrote something down and in a sort of formal way, thinking about it actually, you know, being performed and performable. Um, and I uh, was a little bit, uh, I got a little bit obsessed with Eric Whitaker at that time uh, mm. because of choral singing. And I was actually in a, um, a choir called the National Youth Choir. Uh, which I joined, I think, when I was 16. Um, and uh, we did a lot of Eric Whitaker's music, um, uh, including, it was amazing, I actually went on tour um, with National Youth Choir in America, and Eric Whitaker was there and conducted a lot of concerts, and we did a lot of his music. Uh, so I got to sort of, well, know him from a distance. Um, and I was a little bit obsessed with his music, and I wrote a version of When David Heard. Um, and he, he has that um, beautiful A minor version of When David Heard, and I... Um, and I sort of created a, a B minor version. It was a lot of inspiration, a lot of cluster chords, a lot of things like that. And that was my first piece that could actually be performed in it. And it was, it was performed by our school choir. Um, uh, we went on tour to uh, Venice actually, and they did, they, we did it a lot. So we did it, I think it was performed about six or seven times on that tour. So that was the first time I'd ever had any exposure to, to both writing and hearing my music performed. And it was like a sort of, it was like a drug. <laughs> I was, I was hooked from yeah. that point because there was, I couldn't. I couldn't quite imagine how excited I would feel hearing a piece of music that I'd written being performed. It was amazing. It was just. It's, oh, yeah. it's, it's an experience like none other. If it's performed well and you're happy with it. Oh right. Uh, yeah, because <laughs> of course there could be those times where you know you sort of nod along and think, oh god, this is not going anywhere. Anyway, like I imagined, or how I like <laughs> imagined. You've had those. I'm sure you've had those performances. You sort, oh, of, yeah. say, you sort of say at the end, thanks very much for that. <laughs> so we're quite how you imagined. But this one, <laughs> this one, I was maybe because it was my first time right. having a piece performed, but it was, I loved it. So from there, I just continued writing. I had no sort of formal. No one really taught me how to write music. I just continued doing it I, I wasn't writing down formally on p- uh, pen and paper by that point just still using Sibelius just putting it directly in um, and, but I started to write more pieces of music that could actually be performed so I wrote incidental music for a, a performance of Alice in Wonderland uh, at school um, I wrote some more sort of chamber style things with um, string quartet um, uh, and then when I got to university so this is where I went to I actually did a science degree um, I did natural sciences at Cambridge, uh, and but I was in the choir. I was in Trinity College Choir, which is itself was quite a well famous choir. But I was I was so lucky to be in that. But part of that meant I wrote loads more choral music, but also started to experiment with a bit more um, orchestral and instrumental music in a sort of serious way, and ended up incidentally writing an opera in my in my for my third year. Um, just because I wanted to, uh, wow. <laughs> but I, I, yeah. So that was a that was a pretty intense experience. And from then, it's just been, it's just been sort of developing and growing as a composer. So it all started for me basically improvising on the piano and uh, and singing. Yeah. Wow. So you really don't have any formal training in composition. Uh, no, not re- not really. I mean, when I left when I left university, I decided I wanted to get a bit a bit more exposure to music. And actually, um, I had heard Ken Heskus. Uh, professor in the Royal College of Music, um, and I loved his music. So I emailed him. I'd never met him before, um, and I emailed him to say, "Can I have some lessons?" Um, and he really kindly agreed to to give me some lessons. So for the sort of three years after leaving university, I had these one on one lessons with him, um, uh, where I would sometimes give him some music. Uh, sometimes we just talk about music, and 
he actually exposed me to a, a world of composition that I hadn't come across. I had a very insular world before I listened to Britain, and that was probably the most advanced thing that I'd listened to. <laughs> I hadn't heard really any, well, as I said, I'd heard Ken Hesker's music. I don't know what context it was in, but I hadn't heard really any Ligeti or, or Cage or Utsuk Chin or Thomas Adams or uh, George Benjamin, all these people. And he suddenly sort of said, okay, go listen to this, go listen to this. Uh, Bert Fura, for example, and he sent me to uh, Utsuk Chin has become my obsession since having lessons with, with Ken uh, because he told me to listen to a piece of hers called Rakana for full orchestra. Uh, I was just blown away by it. I just couldn't believe the colours that she was producing from uh, uh, the orchestra. Um, and it, it came from uh, Ligeti. She was taught by Ligeti. Um, but I, the, the, the sort of kaleidoscopic colours that she was creating, the, the amount of percussion she used was just astonishing. And so I, I devoured her, her work. Um, uh, and that sort of exposure to lots of different types of music was was really invaluable because it it forced me to it forced me to actually learn from studying other scores in a in a much more detailed way. So yeah, over the next sort of four or five years after university, my writing changed completely from something that was quite popularist and quite accessible when I was writing at university to something that was much more extreme and much more um, avant garde's the wrong word, but uh, and I hate atonal as well. But mm. whatever I write now, you know, <laughs> being very different to what I wrote at university. Right. And of those composers that you were exposed to, uh, was there any one of them that kind of really stuck out to you or you really were interested by and kind of started to emulate or? <laughs> well, as I, I think it was Unsuk Chin. I think she, out of everyone, I th I'd say um, probably the other person would be uh, Grise as well. Um, mm. But but I'd say mostly on Tuk Chin. I just loved, I loved her music, her violin concerto. I, I yeah, I adore uh, Rakana, her um, uh, acrostic and vorspiel, which is a, for uh, soprano and on ensemble. Just such uh, amazing, beautiful writing. But not, it, it wasn't so inaccessible. I found the music incredibly accessible. Maybe for someone who was listening to it without a sort of that world or understanding that world, would find it very difficult. But I found it so beautiful, um, so resting, and sometimes quite tonal. Like there's a bit in the Kostrick and Vorspiel where she basically has this D major sort of Lydian or D Lydian descending scale from a top A of some of the soprano going down. I mean, she's got lots of different uh, tonalities going on with the different instruments and different tuning, but it's just so, it, it is this mixture of tonality and atonality and this moving between tonal centers and just such a complete control over the color. Um, I'd say the other person, I didn't come across through Ken Hesketh, uh, but I found, of course, uh, I think naturally um, was Hans Abrahamson. Uh, and in particular, let me tell you, um, maybe I was a bit obsessed with listening to soprano and orchestra or soprano ensemble pieces. Um, uh, I mean, well, yeah, I think so. His, his music as well has been a, um, a real inspiration. And uh, again, there's the same sort of colours and orchestration. Uh, let me tell you in particular, but um, a lot of his orchestral work I really love. Wonderful. So listeners of this episode are going to hear your piece, uh, Christ of St. John of the Cross, uh, at the end of the episode. Now, this is going to be a bit of a hard question for you. How would you describe your music to those who have never heard your music before? Oh, blimey. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'd say that if we're thinking about this particular piece, I was thinking about it in terms of color and space. Okay. Space is in leaving gaps between music because music is actually the thing that happens between silence. And there's a lot of silence, a lot of space in this piece, not, not least because for a solo oboist to actually perform it, there needs to be a lot of breathing space. Mm -hmm. But the space is as important, the rests are as important as the things in between the rests. The color comes from this unique i've literally never heard it before i think combination of solo oboe and satb quartet yeah um and it's born out of a visual very visual take on music because i'm taking a painting by salvador dali christ of st john of the cross and using it as inspiration for a painting and i've done that quite a lot mm -hmm. so color and space i think is quite uh, maybe a succinct way of describing it <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh yeah, absolutely. And especially with the oboe creating, using a lot of kind of extra techniques, mm. kind of like a shimmering effect. I Every time I listen to that opening section of the oboe solo, I kind of picture like the painting of a desert. Oh, that's interesting. I can't think of the painting off the top of my head. I'm sure that if I saw it, I'd be like, oh, of course, I've, I recognize this. But just listening to that piece, that opening solo just reminds me of like, uh, like a mirage forming in a desert um, with that extended technique that's kind of being used in the oboe. That's re- that's really interesting. Yeah, so it's got these these multiphonics, which are uh, multiple notes played by the oboe. So there are two right. or three or four notes. And um, mm-hmm. soloist James Turnbull's a, a absolutely amazing soloist. He can produce these. Um, and we worked together to produce those those particular multiphonics. It took a long time to get the right fingering for those. But the I don't I can't actually remember exactly where those multiphonics came from. But uh, I think I was inspired by listening to, uh, I think it was a piece by, I can't exactly remember. There was a solo oboe piece I was listening to at the time that had these beautiful multiphonics. And I thought they would fit perfectly within the, the context of this particular um, work, Christ of St. John of the Cross. Um, and if you actually look at the painting of Christ of St. John of the Cross, it's a, it's a sort of head down view of Christ on the cross. Mm-hmm. Um, like other depictions of the cruci- crucifixion by uh, by Dali, he he had sort of converted or found Catholicism, and all of the depictions are very pure and they they're sort of lacking in violence or blood, um, uh, and they have that that, that same sort of geometric um, uh, distortion of space and time. So that again, that has objects floating, and uh, Christ isn't actually pinned to the cross; he's floating sort of away from the cross. Mm. Um, so it's it's again this 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 idea of sort of suspension. And so I wanted this feeling of suspension within the piece. And I thought the multiphonics really lent themselves well to that. Yeah, absolutely. And then the addition of SATB choir at the mm. end was a very pleasant surprise that after <laughs> listening to a, after listening to an oboe solo work for probably about what is it? 10 minutes. At 10 that minutes point? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so interesting because the, the, the oboe solo and the choir are, are, are two different entities at that mm. point. The, the oboe solo is still doing its its thing, and then the choir is doing something very very traditional sounding. Mm. And and then you, you mix the two together, and you're kind of trying to figure out which direction to go into. And I, I actually think it's a very fascinating piece. I actually love it very much. Thank you. Yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting one, because the, the SATB parts are based on, um, on, on psalm singing in... Right. Actually, the the Anglican tradition—it's um, not in the Catholic tradition. Maybe right. should have got that that route. But I'm I'm from the Anglican tradition, so right. where you have um, singing of of a particular psalm on a on a chord, and it changes based on when you have certain syllables changing or certain words changing. So I wanted that to be to feel really free. Uh, but then, of course, matching that up with the overline. The overline is, in a sense, is still extemporizing, it's still improvising, and it's still in this the same uh, sound world as the opening ten minutes of the of the piece. It's still going in the same direction, but it's 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 sort of they're sort of listening to each other. They're not completely yeah. separate. They're not completely you know uh, unconnected because yeah. there there are points in the score where I get them to line up, where I get them to say, okay, by this point, by a particular sign, you have to have lined up, or you finish and you only start once the choir begins again. Um, when I actually recorded this, I did record them completely separately. They weren't okay. they weren't recorded together. So I, in a sense, there was a part of this that I constructed the piece based on the on the recording because I would I think I manipulated the SATB recording to line up. There was definitely some manipulation to to create that. Um, but in a sense, that sort of told me what the piece was going to be like and how I was going to uh, write it out in the score. I think I actually made some changes to the score based on what I'd done in the recording if I were to perform it live. Because it yeah. was not a live performance; it was a two recordings spliced together. Um, but I, but I, 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 there was something about about that sort of combination of uh, of oboe and SATB quartet. And now that I think about it, uh, strongly inspired by James McMillan's piece, um, I said there was no. I don't think there's any other oboe and SATB piece, but I know there is a solo trumpet, and he's also got, I think, solo violin and, and choir. Um, one of his Strathclyde motets has solo trumpet and, and choir. And I, I, that sort of combination of obbligato instrument plus SATB, I thought, I thought really, really lovely combination of tones. Um, 
and that was what I was trying to achieve with with this piece. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating piece, and I'm sure those who uh, stick around to listen to it will <laughs> will love it as well. I hope so. Sure. Uh, you said when we first introduced ourselves to each other that uh, composition has kind of uh, fallen to the wayside a little bit, so that you can take up your uh, your love of doing uh, video essays. Mm-hmm. So what is a video essayist and what do you do on YouTube? So oh, video essayists. Well, there are a lot of us out there um, <laughs> and doing various different things. It's funny. So, so what I say to some people, you know, what do you do on YouTube? I say I create video essays. I don't quite know what that means, but uh, it's a, it's a sort of very broad topic where you create videos um, uh, about a particular subject. They're usually academically focused um, and they usually have a particular either message you're getting across or a story that you're getting across. So there are a lot of film video essayists who create um, um, analyses of films, and I know quite a few of them, uh, and they're fantastic. And some of the ones I love the most are people like Nerdwriter, um, but he's not just a film video essayist. He creates uh, video essays about a huge variety of things uh, from sort of philosophy and politics to art and, and also music as well. But mine are entirely focused on music. Um, and so I create uh, videos about, um, about anal- analyses of pieces. I create them about uh, film scores. I create them about art and music. So I've done one on Kandinsky and Van Gogh and Matisse. Um, and, uh, and actually, I've got one coming up on uh, Nutcracker and the story behind uh, the Nutcracker. is a very sad story behind it. Um, it's my favorite. The Nutcracker is my favorite story of all time. Uh, it's a it's a beautiful it's a beautiful story and uh, the the but the actual story behind its conception and its composition is is a is actually a very tragic one. So I know I won't give the game away as to what 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 the story is, but I've yes yeah, so I'm in the process of making that one at the moment. So I'm actually literally just before recording this podcast, I was downstairs uh, doing some video editing, uh, which <laughs> takes a long time. Um, but it's it's a it's a funny thing because out of my um, I actually don't I haven't written a piece of music. Um, for probably the past, I think it's been a year and a half now since I've written something. I'm actually, actually saying that I'm actually I've actually just finished a piece <laughs> okay. before before this current piece that I've that I'm that I'm writing. Uh, I hadn't written for a very long time, um, and I think the, partly the reason for that was uh, because I, being a composer, as as anyone who probably listened to this and is, is a composer uh, themselves knows how difficult it is to to make it in a world of composing. Oh yeah, of course. It's it's such a, a financially fraught thing, uh, and it's an amazing thing when you get commissions uh, and we get performances, but they are so difficult to come across, um, and especially in you know coronavirus times where um, you know money is being uh, reduced for the arts in the UK as um, well. I'm sure is, is true in the US as well. It, just to get money for new music is so difficult. Um, so it was slightly born out of a, a, a feeling like I wanted to create something. I wanted to create something new, and it was my own, but mm-hmm. that didn't rely upon uh, you know doing grant applications or fund applications or or convincing conductors to get perform my music or producers or, or you know festival organisers, which is it is just such a grind. So I, I found that I was I wanted to do something that didn't require anyone else uh, in in a slightly selfish way. I just wanted to make something in an impatient way that I could release into the world. I didn't rely upon any money. Um, mm-hmm. And that was where my, where listening in was born. Um, I'd seen uh, David Bruce. Um, and also I was really obsessed with Nerdwriter and his videos. Um, and David Bruce is another mil- uh, music um, uh, video assist. Um, he's also a composer in the UK as well. Uh, there are other people uh, as well that I'm sort of inspired by. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to be able to do this? Uh, and I could create my own style of video essay. And so that was when, the, when was that? First one was in March 2019. Uh, and yeah, here I am 30, 32 videos later. And, and I'm really wow. enjoying it. I'm loving it, actually. I really love it. Yeah, they're fascinating videos. Thank you. What are some of the videos that people can see on that on Listening In channel? Uh, well, so the, for example, my, one of my most recent ones, uh, actually my most recent one was on, uh, the score of Spirited Away. Um, before that I did one on why choral music sounds so good. So looking at formants and harmonics, um, uh, you can also find, uh, about, um, Kandinsky's color theory and how it relates to music. Um, also there's some film score analyses of three videos on Lord of the Rings scores, 
Um, there's a video about Petrushka Stravinsky. There's a video about Radiohead. There's it's just there's just so much stuff on there. Um, it's something for everyone. <laughs> it's something for everyone. Yeah, it's 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 a, it's a difficult thing because you know. Uh, at what level do you pitch it? Do you do you go crazy uh, theoretical and do you alienate some people who haven't come across music theory, or do you go something that is a bit more open and accessible? Um, right. And I'm trying to strike the balance between the two because I know that I've got some followers who are incredibly into very detailed music theory and harmonics and understanding about um, uh, very complex um, things related to music. But then I've also got some people who are just they just like listening to music and they like watching videos that go into detail about music that's not going to be too difficult for them to understand. Right. And for those listening who haven't actually checked out listening in, you should definitely do it because those videos are, are fascinating. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> sure. it's, it's funny because it, it, actually loads of, I'm seeing on Twitter, a lot of my composer and singer friends, they're, they're realizing that they're having to resort to something else because they can't rely upon the, the streams that were there for them before. And actually to create right. something new and different to what they, they normally do. Um, so I know I've seen some people create podcasts, some people create uh, start YouTube channels, some people create businesses that are completely separate. Um, it's yeah. up, you know, in many respects, it's very sad because it's born out of the, the difficulties, the, the huge difficulties that have come from, yeah. from the coronavirus. Um, but it's also good that there is some avenue for creativity, that people can just create a podcast, people can just create a YouTube channel because all you need is a laptop and a bit of software and not even that for a podcast i mean you you, you don't you can just use you know this particular this squadcast or whatever you know you're using yeah. to create your podcast and, and maybe a bit of editing software but you can get free stuff that's yeah that's, that can do the job really well um mm -hmm. so it's it's a it's really fun to be able to do and i'm actually just incredibly grateful that that anyone has watched any of my videos i don't think <laughs> it's strange because i actually at the moment, it's getting. I've got a bit of a surge on my YouTube channel. It's um, twenty-four thousand-ish subscribers at the moment, and that has been a big burst. But at the beginning, when I was churning out churning out videos, no one was watching. Yeah. <laughs> um, so a year and a half ago, I, I think I released I think about five or six videos, and they were getting, you know, sixty, seventy views, maybe over a hundred. If I go, got over a hundred views, I'm like, wow, this is amazing. Um, yeah. And it's it, it's amazing how it can go from 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 nothing and the algorithm doesn't send it around anywhere yeah. and then suddenly something just happens where someone finds it they might share it and then there's a, just a bit of a snowball effect and it escalates and right. um yeah i'm hopefully hopefully i'll sort of continue on that trajectory <laughs> hopefully it's not gonna <laughs> dissipate no, no, no. yeah yeah how do you feel that your career as a composer has helped your career as a video essayist well, firstly, I have Sibelius, uh, the program, which is which is really good because I create all my my um, most of my scores for my videos are created in there. But also, uh, I I approach it in exactly the same way I approach a composition. It's exactly the same approach. I say to my, I say to myself, well, I need to have an arc for this video in the same way that I'd have an arc, a narrative structure for a for a piece of music. There needs to be an ebb and flow. There needs to be a pace. There needs to be a highs and lows. So when I'm creating the, the structure for my essays, I actually approach it from a sort of musical perspective. Um, I also think about the music constantly that's going into it because, uh, again, that's going to sort of make it more uh, more film-like, actually, more have a, a sort of a narrative, have this, this particular three-act structure that I'm always looking for in a particular essay. So from that point of view, it's great. It's also good because uh, a lot, I have to do a lot of transcription for my video essays and so having an ear to be able to hear um hear lines and uh and actually transcribe orchestral or uh, chamber music is really useful so my i did a star wars uh, video essay and two of the i did sort of uh a score extract from uh, each of the three trilogies the star wars trilogies and the first two i had scores for and i could find scores for online but for the one from the last jedi i didn't have a score um, I didn't have anything, so I spent about three weeks transcribing this ten-minute sequence, mm. or slightly less, eight-minute sequence from from the Last Jedi. Uh, it was it was incredibly hard. Yeah, <laughs> I tell you, it was not it was not easy. But I <laughs> actually, it was I nearly gave up at one point because I'm like, I cannot do this. I can't I can't hear this. 
Yeah. I know. I certainly know how you feel. When I was graduating from my undergraduate, I was given a kind of just like a little job mm. of um, creating a score for John Philip Sousa's uh, suite to the operetta, The Bride Elect. Oh, right. And I won't actually name any names here, but the the band that I was doing this job for only had the instrumental parts, oh, and they didn't have they didn't have a score. So they hired me because they wanted me to create a score. And so, I mean, I I actually similarly to you, I started learning composition and and doing those kinds of things because I also had Sibelius. I started on Sibelius 7 at the time because mm. by the time that I started composition, that was the most, that was the latest one. Mm. Um, and yeah, so I, I completely understand the frustration on that because yeah. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes just trying to transcribe it is just, is I, I even think that trying to transcribe it is even more difficult than trying to uh, create something of your own because oh, you're yeah. trying to recreate something that somebody else wrote. And if Sibelius doesn't have that little notation that, <laughs> mm. um, or trying to find, figure a way to type in the one little notation that <laughs> yeah, doesn't it, it, on Sibelius, it's yeah, it, it, yeah, Sibelius really doesn't help you sometimes, does it? It just no, <laughs> and I've had to be, I, as I, you know, with my when I was writing really quite advanced solo pieces just to get the because I would handwrite them first and then put them into yeah. Sibelius just to get the thing that I, I actually wrote down into Sibelius would sometimes take forever um but the, mm. the slight problem is that once you've got it and once you've used it once you sort of know how to get over the awkward issues with Sibelius you can't I feel that you can't ever go off the program uh you no. know you've, you've learned you've spent too much time <laughs> and energy learning this yeah. program you just can't you can't give up on that <laughs> no <laughs> Did you learn all the sh the keyboard shortcuts yeah. or did you? Yeah. Keyboard I, shortcuts. Yeah. Yeah. I, once I learned the keyboard shortcuts, I was not using my mouse ever again. <laughs> no, I, yeah, I agree. You can, you can learn it, but actually as a, as a beginner, there's that uh, tentacle video. I don't know if you've come across tentacle on, on YouTube. Uh, he's, no, no. He great, he's created this um, hilarious video and you should definitely watch it um, about Sibelius and how simultaneously, uh, well, mainly how frustrating it is and how difficult it would be for first-time users because we all mm. forget what it was like to be a first-time user on Sibelius. Um, I've been using it for years, but I can't remember yeah. what it was like originally. But yeah. you can imagine coming across this program thinking, what what is going on here? Why is it mm -hmm. so complicated? It's an amazing video. You should definitely watch that. But um, yeah. Yeah, so I, yeah, so I actually being a composer has genuinely helped my video essays and, and the, so the transcription being being one and also, and, and actually you're just also having access knowing about a lot of music um, and sometimes being able to rescore them. So I sometimes to get past the content ID system, the copyright system in YouTube, I actually, I, I, I supplement the scoring of a particular track. So my, my last video on Spirited Away, uh, the Studio Ghibli copyright system is really strict. And so I actually had to supplement the original audio with additional parts. So I went into Sibelius and sort of created like uh, string parts and some percussion parts and overlaid them on top of the the audio track to to get past the copyright system because mm. I, I, I don't know if you know but the youtube copyright system for audio is is incredibly strict yeah i do it's part of the reason why i have yet to actually upload my podcast to youtube uh, it's because the, the the music that i use uh would require a whole separate contract with mm just to be able to use things on YouTube. And so, yeah, I completely understand the <laughs> dilemma there. It is, it is difficult, but I suppose with, with new music that should mostly be okay because they won't be uploaded to the content ID system. So if you're, I suppose with, with composers, it should be okay. But if you're using anything that has, uh, you know, from a film or from, from a soundtrack or from, or any other music, then that's going to be difficult.
Hey, you. Yeah, you. Listening to this episode right now. Come in a little closer. Let me tell you a story. Back in the early days of the COVID-19 lockdown, I was truly struggling with my health and fitness. My gym was closed, and I didn't have any equipment at home to be able to do a proper workout. I was laying around my apartment, moving from my couch to my bed, and vice versa, reading a ton of books, eating unhealthy foods, and just living my couch potato life. I would occasionally get the nerve to go out on a walk in my neighborhood, but those were too few and far between. Then something happened. It was like a switch flipped in my head, and I was sick of this life and I needed to do something about my health. That's when I found Roy Belzer Fitness, and then everything changed. Every weekday I wake up with an email in my inbox containing a new workout video, and I can do that workout whenever my busy schedule allows. Better yet, in these videos, Roy does the workout with us. So his words of encouragement mean all the more to me, who is just sweating all over the place. But Roy Bowser Fitness isn't just a daily workout routine. It's a community, a shoulder to lean on, and a body-positive space where all are welcome and are free from judgment. Via a private Facebook community, every student gets to share their own journeys and encourage others to keep going. We all get to engage with each other every day, sharing sweaty selfies after workouts, nutrition tips and recipes, and posts that keep us accountable for one another. When you sign up for Roy's class, you not only get to join this incredible group of people to keep you accountable, you also get a free nutrition guide and the opportunity to win incredible prizes like free memberships and cash prizes. You can get back to your weight loss and fitness journeys right now when you sign up for Roy Belzer Fitness. Just go to RoyBelzerFitness.com slash sign up or click on the link in the show notes and use the code CRONPODCAST at checkout to get 10% off your first month of classes. Again, that's RoyBelzerFitness.com slash sign up and use the code CRONPODCAST at checkout for 10% off your first month. Join me and this wonderful community of like-minded individuals living healthier lifestyles in a body-positive space with Roy Belser Fitness. Okay, okay, shh, shh, shh. The episode's starting again. What was one of your favorite videos to work on? It's, it's interesting because they all sort of have these different feelings and flavors and some of them are quite, I, I love doing and I sort of get into the, to the feel of it and some of them are, are a bit more frustrating. Um, <laughs> but I think actually it probably was the Star Wars video. Okay. Because, because it took so long to do the, tra the transcription of that last Jedi. I felt so, I felt so pleased with that once I'd done it. That yeah. actually creating the video after that was quite it was really enjoyable and you know it just just actually getting getting to transcribe that was really fun um the other one i had to transcribe was uh jacob collier's moon river uh mm -hmm. and so when it was released uh i think it was in jesse volume jesse volume one um or jesse volume two i got wrong but no jesse volume two i spent i tried i got to transcribing that really quickly because uh, i knew that june lee and various other people would be transcribing it uh so i uh, i i spent a long time sort of uh, creating the score for that and that was really fun as well i enjoyed my, my kandinsky one as well was a, a big highlight because i uh that was that was my first art and music one um and i really loved putting that one together especially yeah. when, when it's so visual when you've when, when you're creating a video that doesn't uh have a lot of visual components either it's not based on a film or it doesn't give a lot to me in terms of visuals and pictures that's really difficult because i need to create b-roll or create create images from some uh somehow and that takes a lot, a lot of time but when you're doing one that has a lot of visual components like the kandinsky one i had all his art and it's so beautiful it's so vivid and colorful 
it just lent itself so easily to the video essay format. And that was, that was a real pleasure to put together. Wonderful. Is there a video or videos that you have made that you're surprised at the amount of people listening or the positive reception or even videos that you hoped would do well and that haven't? <laughs> yeah, there, there are both, definitely. I'll start with a video that I hope, hope that I do what do well. And that was, that was the one on, on 1984. So okay. I created a video on the music of, 19, of George Orwell's 1984. And it probably didn't do well because we were, you know, basically living through 1984 in our, in our respective countries uh, <laughs> in some form. Uh, maybe people didn't want to, you know, engage with that sort of dystopian yeah. uh, <laughs> world uh, because they were sort of living it. Um, but I, I really love that essay. Uh, because it took me a really long time to put together the script I created about um, four or five months before I actually did the video because I couldn't think of how to do the video it wasn't jumping out to me because it was based on the novel I could use the text from the novel um, but I I hadn't seen any films um, based on 1984 but then I watched the version with John Hurt uh, and then it sort of came together and I was really pleased with the essay but that hasn't been viewed many times that's only been I think about a couple of thousand views Um, Mm. I know that sounds like a lot, but actually relative to some other ones, uh, it's not not as quite as, as good as I was expecting. But on the other side of, uh, of the, the coin, my choral music video, which was released, I think I released that about a month ago, mm-hmm. um, has done uh, amazingly well and surprisingly well, and I did not expect it to do that well. Uh, so that's had nearly 30-something thousand views, as I said earlier, and that I was not expecting at all. So it's amazing to have that reception. I think people were sort of missing choral music and missing singing so much that they found the video, a, a mm-hmm. very positive video about how much I love choral singing and how much I love the sound of choirs and why I love the sound of choirs in terms of the uh, the overlap of frequencies and formants and so on that I think people really engaged with that. Um, yeah, I was really pleased. pleased yeah. I was just about to ask you, why do you think that happened? I, th- I think I think it is just because people miss miss singing, and there's there's something about the the sort of choral singers that they are really into what they're doing, uh, whether oh, they're yeah. amateur or professional. They they're completely committed, and there are so many choirs in the UK. We've got we've got hundreds and hundreds of choirs. It's amazing. It's an incredibly rich tradition. So people love it, and people want to know why they love it so much. They're sort of keen to keen to get into that. Uh, and actually, it was a bit clickbaity as well. Why, you know, why does choral music sound so good? Yeah, that was one of my most clickbaity titles. And I think, <laughs> so I don't, I don't mind because it sort of it asks a question, and I hopefully answer the question in the video. Um, but I think the fact that it was quite clickbaity uh, meant that yeah. people clicked on it more. And then when they started watching, they were convinced by it, and so they continued watching. And then what happens is the algorithm picks it up and then sends it round. Um, so that is. That one skyrocketed, um, whereas others have not. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because I, in terms of a composing career, I would say I am not actively pursuing a composing career mm-hmm. at the moment. I mean, that might change, but the I and I always thought I always thought I was going to be a composer until I die. I thought I was never going to stop composing, and there was a period from basically when I was thirteen to when I was 20, 27 that I would compose constantly. I would not have a piece, not, I would not not have a piece on the go. So I'd always <laughs> be writing. And as soon as I finished a piece, I'd go to the next piece. Mm, yeah. um, not even, I wouldn't give myself a break. Even though I said to myself, every time I finished a piece, I'm going to have a break. I'm going to take, take a month off. I never did. I just went straight oh. on to the next piece. And as a result, I've got loads of unperformed pieces. But I, I thought that I was, I was always sort of destined to be a composer. But I think mainly because I didn't have another creative out, outlet. Yeah. I, have no, I didn't do anything else creative. I, I do play the piano, but I'm not on a professional level. I do sing, but again, not at a professional level, uh, just in, in choirs or cathedral choirs or, or um, uh, sort of good amateur choirs. Um, but then when YouTube came along, yes, there are frustrations associated with it and so that actually the, the, copyright, the copyright and content ID system is, is something that causes quite a lot of frustration to all YouTubers and all video essayists, but yeah. it's, it, it became a creative outlet. And actually I felt that I didn't, I didn't need composing anymore. Um, yeah. it, which is, it is, is in, in respects is, is a little bit sad because it means that I haven't written anything for a year and a half apart from this current project, which I might explain actually. Um, 
but actually I, I love it's so creative making these video essays I get to research amazing topics um, most of which I don't really know about until I research so I I'll, I'll sort of find something fascinating and go oh that's interesting I'm going to look up that and then I find this thing and I now I sort of delve deeper and I keep going and keep going and then I find this whole story and then this, I sort of build this story of this world of music in this little little sort of bite-sized format and and then doing the video, the video editing itself is an incredibly creative process. And so I don't feel like I need to do the composing. I don't yeah. actually, it's quite sad, but I don't miss it because I've got, I've got the YouTube, uh, my YouTube channel to do. Um, that said, the, the, the piece I've actually written, I was commissioned by um, Mercer Island High School um, because they come, came across my YouTube channel. Um, and they have an amazing, uh, uh, so an amazing selection of wind bands in Mercer Island High School in, in Washington State. Um, and it's in Seattle, isn't it? Yeah, that's one. Um, and they, they've commissioned me to write a, a piece, um, a wind band piece, uh, which is amazing because I've never actually written anything for wind band before, concert band, um, and to create alongside it a, a YouTube video. So a listening in style video. So very shortly, well, very shortly, I so say next year at some point on my channel, there'll be a, a video about how I created that and it's going to be done remotely. So the, all the students in Mercer Island High School are going to be recording their parts remotely and then I'm going to stitch it together, edit it together into a new, into a recording, um, which will be part of the YouTube video and how I'm going to do that. And so that's going to be a sort of slight departure. Um, but th that was an interesting, a really interesting commission. Um, and because they, they asked me to sort of, it's a co-commission for both a, a piece and a YouTube video, um, mm. which is a, an incredibly unique thing that I've never had to do before. And not least for yeah. a concert band, but also for to create the video alongside it. So it's been really fun yeah. doing that one, actually. Yeah, blending the two worlds together. Yeah, yeah, and hopefully I need to find some some sort of story for the for the video. But uh, the the piece is uh, the piece is basically done, which is mm. which is great. I just need to now do the parts, <laughs> which will take yeah. a while. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, is there anything that you want to plug? Uh, well, no, apart from my my YouTube channel. So to go check out listening in. Uh, there's loads of videos up there, 30-something. I think I've got 32 videos up about loads of different topics, film music, music and arts, um, analyses of pieces. So if you're interested in classical music, just go and check that out. Yeah, awesome. And you also have a Patreon page that you just started, didn't you? I do. I've just, yeah, just started the Patreon page. Um, so I've got uh, some, some behind-the-scenes stuff going on there, some videos of my Final Cut Pro um, uh, projects and uh, sort of uh, previews of upcoming videos. And if you want to get early access to my videos, you can also join my Patreon and send them out a few days early before my uh, before publishing on my YouTube channel. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate you sharing your story. And my pleasure. I hope everybody goes and checks out your your YouTube channel because it's it's great stuff. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks for chatting. Thank you once again to Barnaby Martin for joining me as today's guest. Make sure you go and check him out on all the platforms that he mentioned. I have also provided links to all his sites, platforms, and projects in the show notes, which you can also access on alexandriamedia.org slash The Composer Chronicles. If you've enjoyed this episode, head on over to Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or any other platform where you can leave a rating and a review of this podcast. The more ratings and reviews, the easier it is for new and potential listeners to find the show. If you've really enjoyed this episode, become a member of my Patreon page where you can get early access to ad-free versions of every episode, as well as a Patreon-only podcast named Unscripted for only $1.50 a month. The Composer Chronicles' beautiful theme music was written by Daryl Banner. If you'd like to stay up to date on all news related to The Composer Chronicles, you can follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter by searching for the handle Cron Podcast. Next week, Bruckner's Symphony No. 9, dedicated to the beloved God, was left unfinished due to his death. But depending on how you look at it, it may have been completed before he even began. And now, enjoy Christ of St. John of the Cross by Barnaby Martin.
Alexandrian Media, Art and Culture for the Modern Era.